Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New New Books Network for another episode on the Sex, Sex Work, and Sexualities channel. My name is Zachary Lowell, and joining me today is Lisa Sigel, Professor of History at DePaul University in Chicago. I'll be speaking to Professor Sigel about her fascinating new book, The People's Porn, A History of Handmade Pornography in America, published by Reaction Books in 2020. Her previous books include Making Modern Love, Sexual Narratives and Identities in Interwar Britain, and Governing Pleasures, Pornography and Social Change in England, 1815 to 1914. Her latest book is a fascinating account of handmade, homemade, and amateur pornographic artifacts. Not only are these objects compelling and interesting in their own right, but when brought together, Professor Sigel uses them to tell the story about American sexual history, which might otherwise go untold and forgotten. What unfolds in the people's porn is not only an absorbing contribution to the historiography of sexuality and desire. The book is also an inspiring and emotionally resonant portrait of human creativity in all of its many forms. As Professor Sigel writes in the introduction of her book on page 10, quote, as much as the world might like to limit sexuality to the realms of the uplifting and transcendent, this pornography reminds us that we are imperfect in both body and mind, subject to pain as well as pleasure, willing to laugh at ourselves and each other, and moved equally by the ridiculous, violent, and sublime, end quote. At times, the images and objects presented in this book might appear shocking, crude, grotesque, problematic, confrontational, unrestrained, unruly. But in the end, they are all deeply human, and they speak to humanity's prodigious urge to communicate desire. I highly recommend this book, and I hope listeners enjoy the conversation ahead. So with that, Professor Sigel, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, First of all, can you tell our listeners about yourself, including your academic background and how you came to the study of sexuality and pornography. Um, Well, I'm a professor of history. I um, developed my interest in the history of sexuality and pornography, even when I was an undergrad. Um, At that moment, history classes were largely about men almost all of the time. And if you had a really liberal or progressive instructor, they might have a day on women. Um, or even a week on women. So it would be 14 weeks on the history of religion, the history of the military, culture, society, politics. And then at the end, there would be a little bit on the history of women, as if it was entirely divorced from those other subjects. Um, And I grew frustrated and interested in what women were actually doing, and then interested in how sexuality fit into that. Um, I started looking at pornography as a way to try and understand the fantasies of sexuality, how people conceptualized or thought about sex, not what they actually did with their bodies. So at that moment, if there was any discussion of sexuality at all, it would be about VD or prostitution and Mary Magdalene societies um, and charity reform efforts And there was very little on how people could think about sex. So I came across pornography. There's this prodigious 19th century pornographic publishing trade. And I started to conceptualize those as objects that would let me chart people's fantasies. Um, And here I am 25 years later, 30 years later, still working on the same topic. Who knew it would be so rich? (laughs) Well, I'm I'm sure there's a lot to explore. And... uh, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I think sometimes it's just, uh, you know, that very early experience that can really change everything when you're an undergraduate. Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, at the, when I started graduate school, it was either going to be creating a history of um, adventure and beliefs about adventure or pornography. And they seem very similar to me as both these fantastical projections that nonetheless have these important consequences on the world. Um, and you know, someday I'll finish with porn and turn to adventure. I can I might see the, be 80 at the time. <laughs> I can see the connection for sure. But uh, maybe you can tell us how you first encountered the the subject of handmade and handmade and homemade pornography. And when did you realize that there were enough of these objects to constitute an archive? 
I came across my first handmade and homemade object um, when I was working on my dissertation research. I was trying to historicize the British publishing trade um, in pornography, and there was just this one little pamphlet, um, and I never knew quite what to do with it. It didn't have an author. It didn't have a clear location, um, a publisher, anything that's used in general to decide provenance. Um, it was just this extremely rich little pamphlet. And I, so I put it to the side. I didn't really use it, but it's always been in the back of my head. Um, about 10 years ago, I decided to try and make sense of that using um, a mantra that I always tell my students in methods classes, which is see what the documents can tell you rather than put an idea on the documents. Um, so I went back to that pamphlet and I began to collect other pamphlets. And from other pamphlets, I worked my way outwards to other sorts of handmade objects. Um, so I was looking at pamphlets and um, one of the archivists mentioned that they had a collection of prison pamphlets. And I was like, oh, I would love to see those. And then they were like, well, it's part of a larger collection of prison pornography. So it's like, absolutely, let me see the illustrations. Absolutely, let me see the handmade quilt. Absolutely, let me see the carved peach pit. And I just worked my way outwards. Um, and I began to see all of these sorts of objects as speaking to each other um, as, a, as a large archive of objects. So it started from one and then it became hundreds. And now it's been tens of, tens of thousands of objects. Yeah, it can really snowball quickly once you know what to look for. Um, but what were, what were some of the, I don't know, maybe methodological or theoretical or practical challenges that you faced um, when it came to compiling your materials? So there's this huge methodological issue of working with handmade and homemade objects in that historians generally work from provenance. They'll take documents and they'll understand them in a particular time in a particular place produced by a person or a group of people and handmade and hot handmade and homemade objects wipe that out you do not know exactly what it was produced who produced it where it was produced so i had to work from either the internal clues something that it might mention that would put it in time or space or the sorts of production methods um, so scrimshaw came from um, whaling vessels and sailing vessels largely in the 18th and 19th century. So I would have to work with, from those sorts of clues um, rather than the more traditional provenance. Um, so it's a, it's a really different methodological problem. It's the same sorts of problems that people working with material culture encounter, but historians are not necessarily um, that used to, or at least I wasn't that used to working with material culture. So it was yeah. a learning curve, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine it was almost like um, like an archaeological approach in many ways. Yeah, yeah. So I had to consider, like an archaeologist, where was it found? What documents was it related to? Um, is it part of a larger collection? Who collected it? Why did they collect it? Where did they shop? Um, so it was somewhere between like art history and archaeology. Um, it's it's fascinating. But I had to I had to think carefully before I used any document. Yeah, this mixed this mixed uh, approach. Uh, I think it really comes out in the book, and it's one of the things that makes it so 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 interesting. But um, so okay, so you mentioned uh, pamphlets, and briefly you mentioned uh, scrimshaw. But um, specifically for these early objects, which are the focus of your first chapter, um, what kind of things are we talking about? Uh, maybe could you give our listeners a sense of, of uh, what you found? Because it is like quite a diverse array of, of artifacts. So there's a wide array of carved objects. So there's carved wooden objects, carved bone objects, carved, carved sea ivory. Um, there's coins that have been reconfigured. Um, there's coffin figures, which are some of my favorite. It's its own little folk art form where you take the lid off and the little carved um, figure inside, a little penis pops up when you remove the lid. Um, for the most part, they're men. I've, se um, I've seen one female um, coffin figure 
There's Men in the Barrel, which later becomes a commercialized form. Um, there's all sorts of carved wooden things um, like copulating dogs. Um, I have a, a little miniature totem pole that someone sent me. Uh, there's things made out of leather, things made out of wood, things made out of metal, things made out of bone. It's just whatever people had around them, they used and they used to make into pornographic objects. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the points that you make is that uh, a lot of these objects are made with uh, readily available materials and also they're kind of uh, building off of uh, established traditions in in uh, in many ways for example the scrimshaw that you that you mentioned but um so anyway for the for, for these first objects especially the ones that uh, might come from the 19th century or, or earlier uh is it possible to know anything about their creators or their intentions um or how they were consumed how they were used um the quick answer is really no with any certainty. The broader answer, the more elaborate answer is we can know that they came from particular communities. So logging camps, uh, men in logging camps created um, wooden art, pornographic artifacts. Men on boats created, you see ivory to create um, pornographic artifacts. Um, the tradition of burying your own kin went on longer in the American South than the, in the American North. So people continue to make coffin artifacts from there. Um, so we can't know the particulars of who made each object um, and why, but we can know in general that these objects seem to come from these communities and then use that context to understand what was going on with the, with the particular artifact. Mm. And uh, is it possible to infer anything from the, the items themselves? In some cases you can um, make inferences, um, but you know, each is an individual artistic product. And so it's hard to say whether it's particular to that, individual who made it or whether it's um, part of a larger cultural phenomenon. So I think that we need more objects, more exploration. I really feel like mine was trying to create a documentary record um, for historians to think about and think through to pull together. I have um, 99 illustrations in the book. Like I said, I've seen a couple of thousands of these and I think that they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Um, and if we call attention, we can make a much more informed understanding of what these mean to the culture. Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> I was really very surprised at uh, just how many of these works there were and how ubiquitous they were. Uh, and I think your book does a really great job of, you know, bringing this to light. But, um, you know, if we can know some things about the, the objects themselves, uh, can, can they tell us... Um, um, about uh, what kind of sexual universe they they gesture towards, like what kind of sexual uh, imaginary do they do they represent? Let's say. So these folk objects speak more to the barnyard and the kitchen than they do um, to cosmopolitan city centers. A lot of the commercial pornography produced about at the time, they'll talk about like harem delights or city delights. The, this pornography um, gestures to the farm, gestures to the ubiquity of everyday sexuality. And it, it's often very funny. It's about sex embedded in everyday life. Um, so I've seen a pie crimper, which I don't know if you know, it's the little thing that you use to crimp the corners of your, of your pie along the top. So you get that mm -hmm. nice edge and it's, you know, a woman's torso with the little crimper thing coming up the skirt. Um, so it's making the crimper into an erotic object. So it's sex in the kitchen rather than sex that's polished um, and about commercial pleasures. Um, there's an object where a little cock comes out of a box and mounts a hen. Um, it's sex in the barnyard. It's sex at the funeral. It's sex embedded in everyday life. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of these objects, they can seem at first glance to be very transgressive in a way, in that they, um, you know, really knock down a lot of, uh, you know, sacred uh, boundaries. For example, um, you can see sexuality even in death with these uh, coffin figurines or, you know, uh, with the defaced coins, for example, that you mentioned. Um is it, uh, is it possible to read them in this way as being transgressive or subversive? Or is that just, um, um, is that a conclusion that we could reach? Oh, I think they're definitely transgressive. I think they're definitely um, subversive in a lot of ways um, that if there is a propriety, you will find a pornographic object that makes fun of that propriety. Um, and that's, it's, it's somewhat delightful that we like to think of the 19th century as stayed or buttoned up. Um, I'm still waiting to come across the pornographic object that, um, that mocks Anthony Comstock. Cause you know, someone <laughs> did it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so maybe we'll find it someday, but um, yeah. I mean, so, there is the Lincoln figure in there. I'm not sure if you remember that. I do. It's a yeah. Fi- it's a figurine of Lincoln and you remove the panel and Lincoln's erection pops up. Um, somebody recently after hearing about my book um, sent me a picture of George Wa- Washington's erotic andirons, you know, that hold logs in the fire and it's uh, right. George Washington with an erection. Um, so, you know, that Comstock was subject to erotic, um, erotic parody probably. Okay. Well, actually, since you mentioned it, uh, can you tell us about uh, Comstock and uh, how his activities uh, maybe shaped um, what we know about sexual history and the history of pornography? So Anthony Comstock was the U.S. Postal Inspector. He was responsible individually um, for the immolation, the burning of pornographic materials that were measured in the tonnage. Um, He was very proud of that fact. He helped push through the passage of the Comstock law that allowed him to search through the, um, the the postal, um, the post office and the materials that were being delivered um, for obscenity. And then he would burn it. He proudly mentioned that he drove, um, I forget how many people to suicide by pursuing them under the Comstock Act and imprisoning them for the passage of obscene materials. Um, So a lot of what we know from the 19th century was based upon his records, what he was willing to put to to paper, um, but we can't know what he was railing against. We can't know everything that he burned. We don't know what the first pornographic novel is. We don't know what the first American pornographic photograph was. Um, We get slight records where people will say, I saw tens of thousands of photographs, but we don't know what those bodies look like. We don't know what commercial production looked like. Now, by a strange twist of fate, we have better records for handmade and homemade objects because those never reached commercial centers. They weren't being sold. They weren't being transmitted. They weren't being sent through the post. People either just held on to them and passed them down or burned them, but it wasn't this whole scale attempt to root out these objects because they were private at home for personal consumption. So we have this, I think, a fairly robust um, sample of handmade and homemade objects where a lot of commercial productions were burned. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's um, shocking to learn about this gap in the archive and how much material was destroyed. But uh, I think that really makes these these um, amateur objects uh, all the more valuable. Yes, I agree. Yeah. So you touched on it a moment ago, but uh, you write that these early pornographic uh, objects, they, um, they challenge narratives about the growth of industrialized and commercial sexuality. Um, can you tell us a bit, a bit more about this? And um, how, 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 um, how are the amateur and the vernacular uh, speaking to each other uh, in various ways? Is there a dialogue between the two? 
So the model that was um, in existence was that industrial or commercial culture would rise, you know, started being developed and that it would wipe out amateur or vernacular production, that people would buy instead of making, that the ideas that were circulating in commercial culture would overtake those of um, vernacular origins. And that, that doesn't really happen, um, at least not the way the model might suggest. Um, and you can, so for example, there's one screenshot object that I've seen that it looks like it might've been a commercial plate that was then put on a screenshot object. So that's a case where commercial culture was incorporated into the vernacular. Another case would be with coins where those are marketplace items. They're all about buying and selling. Everybody had them for buying objects, not for making objects, but people remade them with vernacular ideas. Um, so I don't think that the arrival of a commercial culture necessarily wipes out a vernacular, um, at least not during the time frame when it's supposed to be doing that. Mm, okay. Well, actually, that uh, brings us to the second chapter where you uh, explain how mass mass consumer culture and new technologies of, of replication allowed people to create uh, new imaginary sexual selves and to explore new realm new realms of the erotic through sexual simulacra. So, how does this concept of the simulacra become productive for making sense of, of sexuality and desire in the in the early 20th century? So the simulacra is um, a copy of a copy of a copy where either the original is lost or there might, there might not have even been an original. Um, if you think about the object of the cock mounting a hen, this is something that I think was created it, where someone sees this in the barnyard and creates an object reflecting their particular experience. Um, or um, there's another carved object of two dogs, um, you know, dogs in the countryside um, having sex. The copy of a copy of a copy often references commercial production, but then remakes it in a vernacular form. Um, and the one of the most interesting examples is the sex doll Polaroid example that I mentioned in my book. Um, and it's someone took all of these Barbie and Ken's and GI Joe's and all of these non-sex dolls um, that were, I don't know, hanging around. Um, they took them and they made them into erotic objects. They gave them little genitals. They gave them pubic hair. Um, they arranged them in sexual tableaus, um, and then they took Polaroids of them, and, and they created this archive of Polaroid images of these dolls put in sexual positions. Now, there, if you think about it, you're getting a, when you look at my book, you're seeing a literary version of a Polaroid iteration of plastic bodies that were originally had no genitals. So it's a copy of a copy of a copy. It doesn't reference sex as in bodies on bodies. Instead, it references ideas of sexuality in the most abstracted form. Um, and I think that this is really interesting as we go into the 20th century in that people are making handmade and homemade objects to meet their desires that are not being created from the universe around them. It's created from their own mind space about what sexuality can or should be. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's also fascinating that, uh, you know, this new creativity, it's also building off of this abundance of material culture and uh, allowing for this opening of new erotic and, and creative horizons, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's particularly interesting because people have these erotic desires, which are not being met by commercial culture. So it was very hard to get gay porn, for example, but people were creating out of 
um, out of bodybuilder images, a sort of gay porn that they couldn't get commercially. So they were remaking commercial culture to meet their, their desires in ways that commercial culture didn't. Yeah, exactly. And in some ways it's almost, uh, as if these amateur, um, these amateur creators see a truth in these, uh, commercial products that's, you know, latent and that, uh, the, the real creators, let's say, almost can't acknowledge. Right, right. They gesture to it, but they can't, um, they can't market it. Commercial culture has no room for queer desires. So they gesture and the amateur artists fill it in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, really fascinating to see all of this creativity on display. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's amazing how how much people invest their time and energy and artistry into creating um, these often very ephemeral sexual objects. Well, the making mattered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of someone who took a lot of time to create artwork, uh, this chapter also includes a case study of Henry Darger or Darger. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce the name, Uh, but can you tell us about Darger and explain maybe how his his output might have reflected the some of the cultural and erotic fixations of his time. So I, I've heard it pronounced dogger. Dogger, um, okay. I, yeah, I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation or not. He um, was a really interesting and tragic figure. He was here in Chicago, um, and his home church was right around the corner from my for my office. So, um, and it's become this really yuppified area. It's this very she, she wealthy neighborhood. When he lived there, it was a really poor community. Um, he was, um, he grew up in a very poor household. He was, his mother died. Um, when he was young, his father was, um, poor. Henry went to school, but he didn't fit in well with other, with other kids. It seemed like, Um, and his father couldn't care for him and eventually sent him to home for feeble-minded children. I think that's what it was called. It's one of those tragic turn-of-the-century names. It was actually attached to an all-male prison, so you can only imagine what that was like. Mm -hmm. Um, He tried running away a couple of times, and eventually he ran away and went back to Chicago um, after his father had died. And he worked as a janitor in um, Catholic services for a variety of different churches. Um, and then in his spare time, he made um, books and book art. And so some of the illustrations that he made for his books um, were like 10 foot across made out of paper. And they're double sided. They're these amazing um I don't even know what how to call them. They're these amazing illustrations to his own internal, his own internal stories that he told himself for decades. Um, so one of them was an autobiography. One of them was the story of the seven Vivian sisters, um, the realms of the unreal, and it's this story of these child slavers and these girls, the Vivian sisters, who. Um, try and save children from this somewhat sexualized child slavery. And he created flags and countries and storylines and then backstories and images. It's thousands of pages that he hand wrote and then illustrated. They're this phenomenal um, project. It was like his life's work that he kept entirely to himself. Um, Eventually he was no longer able to take care of himself and his landlord because he was renting his whole life. His landlord, he went to his landlord and asked for help and his landlord put him in a home, the same one where his father had died. Um, And the landlord was stuck with this apartment that looked like a big hoard. Um, There's Pepto-Bismol bottles, there's newspapers, magazines, um, bales of cord, everything just stacked high his landlord was an artist. And as he began to excavate this apartment, he realized that Henry was an artist as well. Um, and he, the landlord really, 
popularized and publicized Henry Dogger's art. So it was this amazing discovery of this entirely internal world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a huge uh, body of work and uh, all the more remarkable because I think Dogger was working on it totally unknown to everyone else. But, um, you know, he was he was also using, uh, you know, ephemera and commercial products of his time, right, to create his art? Yes, he was using newspapers, magazines, um, children's coloring books. Um, he would collect those from the streets and then he would transfer, collage, redraw, blow up, shrink. Um, he would use the same image over and over again. Um, and so there are these, um, even at the moment they were an- that he was using them, they were somewhat antiquated images that he was making, he was remaking um, to fit his own vision of the world that he was creating. Um, and one of the things that people find both fascinating and disturbing is that he drew these, um, these girls as naked with male genitals. And everyone is um, unsure what that means, what, what we're supposed to make of that. So um, a lot of the images are both beautiful and then the more you look at them, the more disturbing they are. So it'll look like a beautiful countryside scene with young children frolicking and then you'll realize that the children are naked and you'll realize that there are clothed men amongst them. And that what might seem at first like, you know, a picnic scene in the countryside actually begins to look like violence the more you look at it. Mm, yeah, I mean, the, the, the content of the images by Dargar has been, you know, the subject of a, a lot of debate and controversy. Um, because I guess we still don't exactly know um, what he was trying to get at uh, or what his intentions might have been. But uh, still, I think you mentioned in the book that uh, his work was kind of reflecting um, some of the uh, uh, cultural uh, trends of his of his time. Is that right? Well, on his bookshelf, he had Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, and there, in the at the turn of the century in the 1890s, 1910s, 1920s, there was all of this concern over the white slave trade of women who were being sold into sexual slavery. Um, I think that he took this idea of um, slavery and possible, possibly sexual slavery that originally had a very racial element in the early 19th century and then continued to have a particular racial inflection at the turn of the century. And he recreated it into child slavery that had a sexual cast. Um, so he, he pulls particular elements that he finds compelling and remakes it into his own imaginary world. Yeah. And, uh, Darger also writes himself into his own work, um, often in ways that are contradictory or, difficult to understand. And uh, he almost seems like someone who's lost in his, in his own creation. Um, like maybe this world that he creates almost uh, becomes too big for him to understand at a, at a certain point. But, um, you know, maybe in that sense, he's also representative of, of other creators and artists. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, a wonderful way of putting it, that the world that he creates is too big for him to understand. Because um, you might think that he would just, script himself as hero, but he doesn't. He scripts himself as villain, as, you know, on all of these different iterations and different names. Um, and I don't think he quite knew how to exist in this imaginary world, or maybe it shifted over, over the years because he had this imaginary world going for decades. Yeah, and maybe the, uh, you know, the erotic or the pornographic content also be- becomes confused through his own confusion in some ways. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, yeah. I, one of the things that um, people have commented about this book, um, so with Dogger, people both get irate that I am putting him into this whole world of handmade and homemade pornography. 
um, because some people think he's just an artist and he shouldn't even be cast that way. Other people have been quite irate that I include Dogger because he deals with child sexuality um, and that that is beyond the pale. One can't engage with sexuality around children, that that should just be verboten. So I get it coming and going. Um, I think it's super important, however, to recognize that um, outsider artists can have this sexual inflection that it's not just naive, that there are other sorts of issues ramifying through their depictions and descriptions of sexuality. Um, Because it's just too easy to be like, oh, it's this childlike sense of sexuality as if outsider artists aren't affected by all sorts of cultural currents. Yeah, exactly. And uh, this is, um, you know, again, gesturing back to um, the quote I read from your introduction to your to your book at the beginning of the interview. You know, a lot of this art is very challenging and, and very confrontational, and it does make us uncomfortable in a lot of ways. And I think nowhere is this uh, better exemplified than with Darger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, so moving ahead in the book, in chapter three... Uh, you focus on pornography within the prison system, and you write that uh, your aim is to, quote, explore the many ironies embedded in the mutual constitution of pornographic and scientific knowledge that happened as a part of the proliferation of sexual discourse in the mid-20th century. That's on page 111. So can you elaborate on what you discovered with this prison archive, and um, can, can you explain what are these ironies that you mentioned? Um, so this morning in preparation, I started to try and go back and count the ironies and I lost track. So I don't have a set number of ironies. There's too many of them. Um, one of the things that I quickly found out was that pornography um, is not allowed in prisons, was not allowed in prisons when this archive was created and is still not allowed in prisons, um, which I find truly ironic. If you're going to be stuck in prison, what else are you supposed to do but masturbate? Um, but you're not allowed to you're not allowed to masturbate in prisons. It becomes a health hazard for the guards who are working there. Um, and you're not allowed masturbatory materials. Uh, so that's sort of irony number one. So we have this collection of prison materials, um, first commercial products that were confiscated from criminals, um, from prisoners as they were, um, taken into the prisons, and those were put into one collection that was then confiscated and sent to Hinsey. But then we had this other collection of materials, which were handmade and homemade because prisoners were not allowed to have commercial products. Um, so they would make their own materials, um, which were also confiscated and sent to Kinsey. So part of the backstory of the creation of this archive was Kinsey's um, Kinsey's statistical method at the moment in the creation of sexual behavior in the human male. I don't know how much backstory you want me to go into. Yeah, um, let's let's get into that for the listeners who might not be familiar with this. So, how does uh, Kinsey come into the story, and um, yeah, what what role does he have to play in preserving uh, a lot of this material? So, Kinsey was collecting. Um, statistical surveys, um, questionnaires for sexual behavior in the human male. And he started this in the early, in the, in the early forties. He was working at uh, Indiana university in Bloomington, Indiana. And he was collecting surveys from his students to try and understand what was the normal range of human behavior. Um, And he realized that he had a real statistical problem because it was largely white, middle class, um, Midwesterners who were he was getting his statistics from. So he began to branch out and he went first to the major cities in Indiana and then he went to Boys Town here in Chicago. Um, He wanted to try and work with a wide range of people. 
um, as wide as possible. So he wanted to do a total survey, as many people as he possibly could. And he mentions in his published version of sexual behavior in the human male that he's looking for 100,000 interviews. Um, he, he didn't ever get that many. He died before he completed that project. Um, but he thought he could supplement Indiana um, college students with getting prisoner surveys, because what's the opposite of middle class? Why poor people? What's the opposite of Midwestern? Why prisoners, you know, a lot of them from California. So he he thought that this is a population who he could have access to. Um, he contacted wardens and um, psychologists associated with prisons, and he began to do these interviews. As he did more interviews, he grew interested in the question of sexual accommodation, which was what happens when you take all of these men and put them in an all-male environment? Um, how, would how would they accommodate themselves to this new sexual world? Um, so he was very focused on trying to provide information both to the prisoners and to the prison officials on the question of sexual accommodation. He later got involved in a, um, a customs lawsuit where materials coming from Great Britain were seized um, because there was a new um, customs agent. In the past, they had just let things come through but this customs agent said that these were clearly obscene. Um, Kinsey fought this and got embroiled in this enormous lawsuit that he didn't live to see the end of. Um, the Institute for Sexual Research, Sex Research continued it after his death. They used the testimony, these letters, these um, support from wardens and prison officials and members of the judiciary to say that the study of prisoner sexuality was one of the more important issues of the day. The materials taken from customs had nothing to do with prison porn, but the legitimacy of studying the prison sexuality sort of created this respectability, this legitimating function that everybody in the courts could recognize. So that's like another level of irony that these prisoners are not allowed porn. Their porn is being confiscated. He was working with these wardens who would confiscate all their handmade objects. They would study it supposedly for accommodation to prison circumstances. But then it becomes this larger question of sex offenders and what criminal sexuality looked like. And that legitimates Kinsey being allowed to well, the Institute for Sex Research being able to import porn that was otherwise illegal. So that's like the greatest irony of all. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, uh, you know, there has to be this scientific alibi to allow the, 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 not the spread of pornography, but just to allow it to exist and to open it up for, for study, right? Yes. And what could be more important than criminal sexuality and understanding um, the criminal mind through their fantastical productions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, actually, that uh, <clears throat> that brings me to my my next question. Uh, you know, at first glance, a lot of these prisoner artifacts they would seem to be pretty similar in some ways to those made by non incarcerated people. Um, you know, both are use making use of uh, available materials, ephemera, etc. But, uh, you know, how unique are these prison objects in terms of, of, uh, of theme or content uh, to those produced on, on the outside, let's say? So um, they are very similar to a lot of the things produced on the outside. So, for example, there is this plethora of little pipe cleaner figures um, that are produced both in the prison and outside the prison, and they look exactly the same. Um, there's the um, peach pit figurines where you carve a peach pit, um, and there's one from the Kinsey Institute, which is just amazing. It's a little monkey with an enormous erection, and he is masturbating 
with one hand and thumbing his nose at the other. And it's tiny, it's tiny. And there's these little peach pit figures, both on the outside and the inside. So clearly people learned these forms, um, you know, before they were prisoner and brought them to the prison culture. So in many ways, it's a continuation of what you see. On the other hand, there is this theme of confinement that begins to develop in prison pornography. Um, and I think it's a reflection of men's own experiences um, with their own confinement. What does it mean to be confined? How does that affect people? Um, there's this one pamphlet, which, which by the end, the woman is in chains in a prison, confined, and the man is free. Um, so it's not that prison didn't have an impact on people's sexuality. Clearly it did. But I think that there, it's very much reflective of the wider sexual culture at the moment. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I was um, uh, a bit surprised by this because, you know, you would think that, or maybe one might think that uh, prisoners would fantasize about freedom. But in fact, uh, you know, that's not often the case. A lot of the material is about confinement and also about cruelty and abuse as well. Yeah. I mean, if... You would think it would be like sex on a moonlight island with, you know, hula girl, something as far away from the prison as you could get. And instead, it's how to cope with sexuality in this confined place um, with this cruelty. Um, so I think that prisoners were working with the world around them and trying to figure out how to understand sex in that locale. Yeah, exactly. And um, you also mentioned uh, like some written materials as well, too, like uh, poems and, and letters. Um, could you say a bit more about this, about these, these objects? So there's letters which are sent between prisoners. I, I don't work with them extensively, but I've read through them. Um, and they are... Um, they were, you know, when you take little pieces of paper and you roll them smaller and smaller and you make them into a football, that's what we mm -hmm. called them when we were in grade school. And then you could <laughs> flick them at each other in the class so that your teachers didn't see. That's what these letters were. They were these letters which were made, um, folded and folded and then taped and then flicked at other prisoners. And they are both... Um, heartbreaking and sad and sometimes appalling as love letters between men who didn't necessarily have a, a language to speak about um, love and appreciation for each other. So it oftentimes they combine like, you know, I can't wait to see you. I love you. I can't wait to. And then insert some sort of violent rhetoric around sex. Um, yeah. So there are these letters that were confiscated. There's all sorts of materials. There's pamphlets, there's stories. Um, one thing that I realized as I was working my way through these materials is that Kinsey and the wardens created what they call a hot room. And mm. I have never gotten a full explanation. It looks like they provided crayons, paper, pencils, and a quiet place, a quiet space for prisoners to create their own fantasy productions, which were then confiscated and shipped to Kinsey. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Um, when I was reading this chapter and about this hot room specifically, I was wondering, um, you know, is it perhaps this... Um, medicalized, institutionalized gaze, which insists on seeing these objects, you know, through the, the rubric of pathology that makes them different. And if this is one of the ironies that, that maybe you were referring to. That's absolutely one of the ironies that I'm referring to. Um, but I think the final irony that I'm referring to is there is such an emphasis on collecting and seizing these and studying them. And then they are boxed up and put away and virtually no one has worked with these materials. Um, so they were so important, so legitimating that they transformed the U S legal customs code. And yet what you do with them, how that might transform our relationship to prisoner sexuality is completely ignored. 
That's the bitterest irony of all. Yeah, definitely. So moving ahead now in the book to chapter three, uh, we start to see how the impact of World War II and changing public discourse about sex and, and gender are influencing production. So what's, what impact did these movements of history have on uh, amateur pornography during the war years and afterward? So um, as other scholars have noted, um, both World War I and World War II, people used the materials at hand to create um, artifacts. To you know, It was this plethora, all of these shells, all of these casings, all of these clipboards, metal objects, paper objects. Um, people would use that to create what's been called trench art as a genre. Um, and there is a subset of pornographic trench art that comes out of the war as well. There's all of these ways that people have adapted the pinup. Um, the best known way is, um, oh, I forget what they're called. When you paint the pinups on the planes, um, there's a whole language for this. Um, people created this wide array of paintings and they're erotic. They're occasionally a little bit pornographic um, on planes. There's this, there's this profusion of objects. Um, and like all the rest of this book, we don't know who created most of them. We don't know where, you know, they're people in motion. Um, so we don't know exactly where they were created. People brought them back. You know, so there's this, um, it, it's a tr Italian tradition of letter openers made from um, World War II bones and metal objects and shell casings. I don't know whether those were made from um, soldiers or from inhabitants, from civilians who were looking for something to sell to soldiers. So a lot of these objects were just circulating. They were created, they were circulating, and then eventually they made their way back to um, collections in the States um, and in Europe. There's a wide array of um, objects in Europe as well. So that's one way that World War II impacted the creation of amateur and homemade pornographic objects. And uh, I think also you mentioned uh, in this chapter as well that uh, discourse about sexuality also changed because of the war with, um, uh, you know, sexuality being seen as a, as a reward in some ways. Is that right? Absolutely. So... Um, the idea that women were waiting and willing and um, beautiful, um, that is running through the commercial culture, through the governmental uh, materials, it's widespread. And that um, edges into the pornography as well. People took that erotic impulse and made it more public, more visible in their homemade and handmade pornography. I think it was already there but it's articulated more clearly in the pornography. And then after the war, um, the pornography with the, with the development of commercial culture, the pornography expands as well. Yeah. And it's also uh, after the war that we see uh, a lot, uh, a lot more people and a, a, an increasingly diverse group of people as well that are creating pornography too. Right. Yes, although I'm going to put a big although in there because okay. we don't actually know who was creating materials before. It's just that we can start to locate where materials actually came from, who the producers, who the artists were after the war in a way that we couldn't in the 19th century. So we start seeing African-American artists producing materials. Could they have been making it in the 19th century? Yes, absolutely but we can't prove it. There is no provenance. Um, starting in the post-war world, however, we start to see some provenance that links people back to their objects. So we can say women made these, African-Americans made these, prisoners made these. Um, you can get much more specificity. Personally, I would like to think that women were making erotic foods in the 19th century, like we know they were in the post-war world, but those were probably eaten rather than archived. So we'll never know that. 
Mm, yeah, that's a good point, actually. Thank you for that corrective. But um, so, okay, so as uh, it becomes uh, apparent, as we're able to tell that, okay, um, uh, like maybe something a bit more about provenance uh, and the people who are making these objects, um, how are they responding to their own society, like the sexual, the gender, the racial politics of their time? So at a very surface level, um, they respond, you know, directly to political events, as you might expect. Um, so you get like Nixon um, phalluses, uh, which could be large or could be small and shrinking. Um, so, you know, they respond topically to the world around them. But as well, there it seems to be this embrace of new ways of seeing sexuality. Um, and I think about in particular feminist folk artists who try and understand sexuality, um, not necessarily from a masculinist frame, from thinking how do they want to articulate their own vision of sexuality and what could that look like? So we have new models of, it's sort of a reinvention of the older folk category, but also with this feminist, um, with this feminist gaze that gets incorporated. Yeah, yeah, that's a really fascinating change how this uh, uh, how how uh, amateur pornography becomes a bit more self self conscious uh, self uh, mm-hmm. self serious and and more political than than it was previously right yeah absolutely um, you know there had been political elements um, but you know like with the Lincoln figure or the George Washington figure but the satiric element um, especially when you start having um, national satiric magazines, and a lot of which were self-consciously filthy, people began to bring that satiric sexuality back into their amateur productions. Yeah, and uh, uh, also the 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 act of documenting uh, through these objects at that time it it also is part of this process, right? Like it's also part of this this new transition. Mm-hmm people began to take their own sexuality seriously mm. and they wanted to put it on record. They wanted it to be um, rather than shoved in a corner. They, they thought it mattered. And so they began to save these, to archive them, um, to collect them. They began to be important to people's understanding of themselves. Um, historians of sexuality tend to think in the 18th century people considered sexuality in terms of acts rather than identities. Um, And over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries, sexual identities as self-conscious sexual identities begin to emerge. And we start to see people conceptualizing themselves as sexual actors through these objects. Yeah, absolutely. And also um, maybe a new importance uh, placed on the figure of the artist as well too, right? Yes, absolutely. Especially as some of these folk artists become, and outsider artists become famous. Um, the Their names matter, who they are matters. It matters to themselves, and then it matters in terms of the circulation of these documents. They become commercial objects, like um, Henry Dogger's illustrations. I think the latest went for a million and a quarter. I'm not sure oh, right. about that right. figure but we're talking very serious money. Yeah. And also, um, you know, not just auction houses, but cultural institutions in general begin to take notice uh, of amateur pornography at, uh, at this time as well. And that uh, changes how we we start to view uh, the real and the authentic, right? Absolutely. Um, they begin to, Pay attention to amateur products. I don't think that there is a lot of focus on amateur pornography. So if you go into the pornography bucket, you're worth considerably less than if you go into the amateur art category when um, cultural institutions are willing to pay more. If the topic just happens to be sexuality, but it's art, it can be worth a lot more than if it's porn. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned uh, there was uh, one... um a uh, folk artist who um, experienced this, um, depending on how the object was classified as, as folk art or brute art. Well, I, 
it happened to a lot of artists this way, but uh, you know, this, 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 these distinctions really mattered. They absolutely, they mattered then and they matter still. Um, if one's thought of as an outsider artist, um, you can be taken much more seriously than if it's pornographic art. Um, people, you know, since the publication of my book, have said to me, I have this amazing um, book put together by this artist. And if, if it's an unknown folk artist of pornography, it's not worth as much. It just isn't. If it's an unknown folk artist that only sometimes deals with erotics um, and pornographic ideas, then it can be worth a lot more to institutions and museums. Yeah, this process of uh, commodification really changes changes everything. It really does. It cha- it changes everything. But uh, in terms of desire, uh, you know, the desire for the real and the authentic, uh, this can also affect, uh, you know, production and circulation and consumption as well, too, right? Absolutely. I think that pornography in today's world, we think of video or digital pornography. Um, It's not handmade, homemade objects anymore. Those have been transformed by the development of a visual medium um, and a ready availability of computer, first videos and then computers to see pornography. So when I, when I show these objects or I photograph, everyone thinks they're charming and that they're art and that they're authentic and real because of the development of this reliance on photography um, and digital media. At the same time, I think one of the fastest growing areas in pornography is amateur porn, um, you porn, sexing videos, girls gone wild, that there's this search in commercial productions for the amateur and the real um, that is, uh, it's, it's driving a lot of the commercial productions at this moment. We want to think it's true. We want to think it's people with desires having sex for more than money, more than an artistic project on their part. We want to think that it's capturing something. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And that, that also uh, brings me back to a question I had earlier about uh, the distinction between the professional and the amateur, because these technologies, ironically, uh, by advancing so much, they allow for the, the blurring of this, of this line where, you know, profession, the professional can look amateur and the amateur can look professional, right? Absolutely. Um, yes. I don't know what else to say other than, yes, that's completely true. And it, it transforms the sorts of materials that I look at in this book um, and makes them seem quaint and outdated. Um, you see one, you know, naked lady carving from the 19th century and you're like, oh, that's beautiful. Oh, it's an artistic prod. Uh, it's an artistic object. And then when you line up a hundred or a thousand of them together, you're like, oh, wait. Something is more than individual beauty. They're trying to get at something erotic. They're trying to talk about sexuality using this medium. Um, And I think that the development of commercial pornography today, which is focused on the amateur, makes these older ways of communicating seem antiquated, um, seem less subversive than they really were. Yeah, and uh, one of the most striking parts of your book when you talk about this is that you say uh, that... Um, you know, our relationship to technology now influences the way we see these older pornographic uh, objects, as well as what the intention might have been of their creators. Um, you know, the risk being that maybe we don't see them as as having a fully developed sense of their own sexuality, right? Yes. yes. You know, we, <laughs> we see them as, as very limited, as, you know, these oh, you know, we get a little titter and then we move on, but we don't really sit and think about what people were communicating with these objects. Um, So there's this tiny little carved compass. It's a penis, which is on a tiny needle, um, and it points to a vulva. 
and you open mm. it and you're like, oh, wait, that's a vulva. And you have to look really carefully and you're like, oh, there's a little penis pointing at it. So the penis always tra- finds true nor, which is the vulva, which is a really sophisticated sexual message that we miss entirely because we're used to a particular visual lexicon. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, for us, a modern uh, audience, uh, you know, pornography has been so conflated with uh, the moving image, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, the, you know, I, I, I tend to think that there's sort of these technological shifts in pornography um, that first we try and capture the moment of orgasm and then we try and capture the movement Um, But in doing so, we're leaving behind the earlier iteration, which is what happens in people's consciousness. So I think the further that we're trying to capture the true, the more we're leaving behind this idea of the of sexuality in the mind, in the consciousness. Mm, Exactly. Well, uh, I think that this is exactly where your book succeeds. And I have to thank you for uh, writing it. And for the listeners, I really recommend that everyone go out and check it out. Uh, So we're more than an hour now, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. So maybe as a final question, um, I can ask you what you're working on next. I think I'm going to do a um, four-volume set of primary sources on pornography in the long 19th century. So mm. I, I'm charting out what that would look like over the, over the summer. Um, I'm also deeply interested in the London Life League, which was a fetish society that used this fetish magazine from the 20s and 30s to develop this international community in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So if there's anybody who was part of the London Life League, who wants to contact me, I would love to hear all about it. <laughs> yes, definitely do that. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing those uh, when, they're, when they're ready for publication. So, okay, Professor Sigel, thank you very much for joining me today. And thank you, Zach, for interviewing me. Yeah, no this problem. This was great. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. So join us again next time for another episode of Sex, Sex Work, and Sexuality on the New Books Network.